So here we go. On uh, What I want to do is just a, a quick introduction to the sacraments. Um, there's some things that I'm, I want you to memorize. Namely, what is a sacrament? What is it? It's a sign. Sing. It's a sign. Please sign Christ grace. It's a, a sacrament. This is the, the sort of traditional uh, definition. It's a sign instituted by Christ which conveys grace. Okay? A sign instituted by Christ which conveys, gives grace. Okay? So, another, a sign is an ex, you know, it's an external um, external physical action which conveys an inner reality. Okay, so baptism. We use water and, and we either dunk chunk, or uh, pour the water over someone's head, right? The action of doing so is an action of cleansing. So the external physical action is, is symbolic. It's a sign of what's happening internally, right? So God uses stuff to convey his grace. Jesus got a bunch of stuff. He uses the physical world to convey his grace, all right? Bread and wine, oil, um, a man and a woman, just a man for uh, sacred orders. Um, Christ uh, institutes it, so this can be somewhat tricky, tracing back the institution. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that he instituted the sacrament exactly as it takes its form today. So, he institutes the sacrament of forgiveness by, uh, and we'll get to that when we, when we do in a couple weeks, but he institutes the sign of uh, forgiveness by conveying his authority uh, to his apostles, right? Uh, the Gospel of John, the very end, after he rises from the dead, he appears in the upper room. Uh, he breathes on them, receive the Holy Spirit, whosoever sins you forgive are forgiven them, right? Whosoever sins you retain are retained. So he conveys the power of forgiving or retaining sin. He conveys that to his apostles. He clearly has the intention that his apostles, you know, moving on down throughout history, will continue to forgive sins in his name. That doesn't mean, so, so Christ instituting the sacrament doesn't mean that he set up a confessional and said, okay, this is how I want you to do it, because the church didn't do that for, you know, for... Uh, not quite a thousand years. You didn't even have individual sacrament of penance like that. Didn't look like that at all. So, so the sacraments take on different forms, right? I mean, um, you know, back uh, from from the 1500s, late 1500s till uh, till Vatican II, we had a particular form of the mass. You know, Jesus didn't say the Tridentine Mass. He didn't speak Latin. You know, um, he didn't say mass with a fiddle back you know, the vestment with the, 
uh, on the back. He didn't, he didn't do it that way. So it's not about Christ instituting the form of the sacrament, more about him instituting the substance of the sacrament. Okay, sign Christ grace. It conveys his grace. What is God's grace? It's, it's his own inner life, right? It's his love. It's his help. It's his assistance. And so the seven sacraments convey particular helps to us um, by virtue of the grace received, sacraments of healing, sacraments of reconciling, uh, sacraments of vocation, uh, sacraments of initiation, right? Um, okay. Now, every, every sacrament has form, what's called form and matter. Every sacrament is form and matter. Easy way to remember this, every sacrament has words and stuff. <laughs> remember that God uses external, or Jesus, or the sacraments are external signs. Okay, they're physical actions. That's the, that's the stuff. All right, the, the words are the necessary words for the sacrament to be effective. So. Let's use something easy like, um, like baptism. That's kind of easy. So what's the stuff we use in baptism? Water. And what, anybody know the words? I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Boom. <coughs> baptized. In an emergency, anybody can baptize. Anyone. Anybody can baptize. Even if they're not Christian, even if they're not Catholic. If, uh, if it's an emergency and you know that, you know, the person, maybe the family or the person would, would want to have the child baptized, you can baptize, presumably a child or an adult. But you have to use the right words and you have to use the right stuff, you know, predominantly water, although it could be a mixture of other things within the water, but predominantly water. Um, the water does not need to be blessed. It just needs to be water. Um, okay, so there's two principles here. Let's learn some Latin. Um, ex opere operato and ex opere operantis. Now, you don't need to remember the Latin, but some of you might like to. Ex opere operato, um, this is a principle that conveys that if you use the right form and the right matter, and, if, and you have all the necessary requirements of the sacrament, so it's got to be, in certain cases, it's got to be the right minister. So if it's uh, Holy Communion, if it's the Mass, it has to be a Mass. You can't just make Eucharist without a mass, you have to have a mass. Uh, the form and matter, it needs to be unleavened bread and wine. Um, you can't substitute grape juice for wine, it's gotta be wine. Um, unleavened bread. The form, uh, the essential form, you know, when you break it down is, are, are what's called the words of institution. You know, when this is, this is my body, this is my blood. Uh, so it's got to be the right words and stuff. If, if a priest says mass, he uses the right stuff and he uses the right words, 
it is what it's supposed to be, ex opere operato, by the work worked. Okay? The reason this principle came into effect it has to do with uh, Donatism uh, during the time of Augustine. There was a question as to whether the, um, whether the morality or, or uh, sinfulness of the priest mattered. So in other words, there were all these, all these priests who had um, abdicated the faith and then they came back after the persecutions were over. They were forced to sort of abdicate and, um, instead of dying instead of being killed. So, um, so then they came back into the fold. The big question was, well, if these, these are grave sinners, can they, are their sacraments still valid sacraments? And Augustine is the one who essentially settled the question, and, and this is where we get the principle. If, if, if it's a priest, if it's the right minister, says the, says the right form, you know, if it's liturgy or the form of the sacrament, uses the right stuff, it is what it's supposed to be. Doesn't matter if the priest is in the state of mortal sin. Doesn't, none of that matters. Because it's Christ who, who does it. It's Christ who works through the priest. Okay, the priest has received a sacrament uh, of ordination. It's, the, it's Jesus who works through the priest. You know, so when you say, well, Father, you know, will you forgive my sins? I mean, technically, no, I never do. In one sense, right? It's Jesus who forgives them, right? Um, it's always Jesus who's, who's operative in, in the sacraments. It's Jesus who's the priest at the altar, all right? But he uses, again, Christ chooses to use external physical actions, people, or things to convey his grace. And so certain sacraments require a priest, just like he was a priest, just like his apostles were priests, okay? Now, ex opere operantis is a principle that's largely been forgotten we focus so much on just doing it the right way that, especially in regards to, I would say, well, I'd say a lot of things, you know, like, uh, you know, people will rush to get their kids baptized or grandparents will push their, their kids to have their grandkids baptized and nobody's practicing the faith, you know, and, and so, yeah, they're baptized, but ex opere operantus has to do with taking the grace, if you will, or receiving the grace, not just in a worthy manner, but in a way that it can become fruitful. So it speaks to the fruitfulness of the sacrament. Okay, so if, so in other words, um, well, I went to Mass, uh, the, story, the story I'll tell is a story I heard years ago of, of a woman who, um, uh, July 1st, she'd start, and she would go to every Every daily mass, every Sunday mass, every funeral, every wedding at the parish until she reached 300, I think 365, and then she stopped for the rest of the year. She got them all in, you know. So she did the work, but, you know, I would, I would say, well, did you, what about the grace? What, what, there's more to it, to going to mass than merely receiving communion. You know, or, you know, a person who just, you know, kind of shows up late to Mass, receives communion, leaves right away. Um, it's a little bit more noticeable in a small town, so I don't think people do it as much, but of course in, in the, the big city where most of the pagans live, um, it happens all the time, you know. Well, now, and, and of course we don't want to presume, you know, bad faith. I mean, some people, maybe they, they've got to get home. Maybe their kids are at home, or they've got sick ones, or they've got, they're on call. I mean, there could be extenuated circumstances, of course, 
But there are some people who basically they just go, they do the thing, and then they leave. So regarding the liturgy, you know, there's nothing about the mass or community or, you know, really praising God. It's about just going and getting the Eucharist and leaving, okay? So if you don't focus also on ex opere operantus, which has to do with the fruitfulness of the sacrament, being properly disposed, okay? So this is one reason why, regarding baptism, um, the church is actually fairly liberal with, with um who can be baptized. So there, there's actually much stronger requirements on the godparents than there are on the parents themselves. But what the, what, what the church says is that for somebody to be admitted to baptism or to have their children baptized, there has to be a well-founded hope that the child is going to be raised in the faith. Now, you know, what does that mean? Well, it, it at least means they're probably going to mass pretty regularly. So, and we'll get calls. I mean, even here, you know, people want to get their kids baptized. Are you going to Mass? Nope. You know, down in Ash Fork, we'll get that, you know. They want to have their kids baptized. You going to Mass? No. <laughs> Why do you want them baptized? Superstition, because I don't want them to go to hell. Great. Yeah, because God's going to send them to hell. Right. You should probably be worried about you going to hell, given that you're not going to Mass, and you're not taking your kids to Mass, and you're not going to raise them Catholic. Because it's, it's so hypocritical to say, I want to bring them into this community, and then I'm never going to raise them Catholic. Like, you know, we need to be, try to be people of integrity. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean that people aren't going to miss Mass from time to time. And I mean, it happens. That's real life. But, but to have no intention. Uh, my associate at a previous parish had somebody who came in, and she wanted to get her child, child baptized. And he said, well, are you going to Mass? No, I don't go to Mass. Well, are you Catholic? Yeah, I'm Catholic. Okay, well... You know, we really like you to start going to Mass. No, no, I, I don't want to go to Mass. Well, but, you know, to be Catholic is, that's like one of the things we do as Catholics is go to Mass. No, I don't think, I disagree. I can be Catholic without going to Mass. He showed her the door, you know, and said, <laughs> there's nothing to work with, you know. Because normally if, if people aren't uh, going to Mass, well, we'll ask the parents to go, well, this is what kind of my, what I do is if they haven't been going to Mass at all, I'll say, well, let's see you for three months at least. Let's just see some effort, you know, a good faith effort. I mean, yeah, after three months, they might just never go again, but at least there's some sort of willingness to try. Um, but if there's no willingness to try, and if, if a lot of times people get really upset about that too, you're going to deny my child baptism? No, technically you are. If you would raise them Catholic and go to Mass... Um, by the way, parents, if they're, you know, if they're married in the church, they're asked, are you, if you have children, will you raise them according to the laws of Christ and his church? I do. And then at the baptism, they're asked two times or three times. It's two, right? Will you raise the, these children according to the laws of Christ? Yes, I do. Well, if they're not going to go to mass, you know, if they're not even demonstrating that they're, they're doing the bare minimum, then why are they doing it at all? Right, So it begs the question, it goes back to just, it could be a lot of people do it out of superstition, you know, or you got to get them baptized, got to get them baptized because they're going to go to hell. I mean, you know, we don't believe that. We don't believe God is just waiting there trying to send people to hell, you know, like God is out to get us or your children. I mean, how horrible is that? What does that say about what we think about God? God's just waiting to send your kids to hell. 
because you didn't get them baptized when they were infants. It makes uh, no. It makes the whole thing. Um, it makes the it makes the whole thing uh, superstition or magic. If I just do this formula, they're protected for eternity. You know, well, not necessarily. Um, okay, but there is there is an element of that as to why people have that in their consciousness, and we'll get to that. So always remember that when we're talking about the sacraments, there's the there's the yeah, the, there's sort of the form and the ritual and doing it the right way. But then as it, when it relates to the person who receives the sacrament, there needs to be a consciousness of how can this become fruitful, right? So if people are uh, with confession, um, at one parish I had, until I stopped doing it, and it was for this reason, I had confession, we had daily mass twice a day during the week, and uh, we had confessions before every, every mass. And uh, we we're right in the middle of the city, so we got people from all over. And there are some days I would have, I would have the same person in the morning and in the evening <laughs> confessing the same sins, or just consecutive days, you know, just, just over and over. And so they'd, they'd go, to the conf- go to confession, they'd be forgiven, they'd go home, they'd do the same thing, and then they come back, same thing, over and over and over. Now, there's all kinds of things that are wrong with that, but None of this is going on, you know. They're just, they're using the sacrament as some kind of crutch. Um, but they're not actually allowing the sacrament to be fruitful, you know. Allowing the sacrament to, to really receive that forgiveness, to, to really feel that healing, you know, and, and the reconciliation between themselves and God. Furthermore, a person, you know, like that normally has a scrupulous conscience, which, by the way, mitigates their sinfulness anyway. And would mean that they're probably not even committing a mortal sin anymore, so they don't even need to go to confession, but they're doing it because they need to feel forgiven, which is basically another way of explaining Martin Luther and why he did what he did. But that's another issue. Okay, baptism. The, uh, the sacraments of... Remember that the sacraments went, underwent all kinds of change in their form, um, which has to do with sort of the, the, the liturgy or, you know. Uh, but they also underwent a significant amount of change in their understanding. Um, it, and this isn't hard to understand if you consider that the Lord Jesus, you know, basically left his apostles with everything he taught them, you know, and they wrote some of it down, and, and we call that the Gospels. But then he, you know, he told them, he was with them for three years. They obviously didn't write down three years of data, but he was teaching them for three years. Um, and then they continued after his ascension, they continued to do what they thought he told them to do or you know, what they understood him to have, to have taught them to do regarding churches and celebration of the sacraments and everything else. Well, what inevitably happens is... Um, is there's a period of time at the very beginning where you're still trying to figure out what that looks like. And, and then as the church grows and grows and grows, especially after the Edict of Milan, which was in the year 313, thank you, um, that because of the Edict of Milan, which allowed Christianity to be practiced within the Roman Empire, right, Constantine. So now people didn't have to hide. They could practice 
publicly, and then the church just blossomed. So then, then you have this huge organization, and then you have a question of, well, that church in Corinth is practicing the, the liturgy this way, and in Thessalonica, they're, they're doing it this way, and then the bishops talk amongst each other, and like, well, maybe we should do the same thing, because we're the same people. And then they start to get the ritual put together, and right? I mean, so it just sort of, in the early church and in the patristic times, right, in the early uh, few hundreds of years, there's this gestation of ideas and figuring out what Christ meant and how are we going to do this as a church, you know, with, with uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of people. How are we going to do this? So naturally, there's going to be some development. All right. So, you know, when you read in the scriptures about baptism, uh, it, it's, it's pretty automatic, you know. I mean, some, you know, Joe says, the apostle goes to Joe and and Joe, he says, well, you know, here's, here's the message about Christ. And do you believe? Yeah, I believe. Okay, baptize. Boom, you're in. That's it. I mean, it was really, really, it's in the scriptures that way. You know, it's boom, baptized, you're in. No instruction, really, very, very little. It's, it's, really, it's basically just, I believe, okay, baptized. All right, baptism is sort of a, um, a sign of the fact that a person has come to that belief in Christ. Um, now, and, and so just like St. Just like Paul, his baptism was about dying to his old life and then being baptized and converting to a new life. That's basically what baptism was understood to be. But during the patristic period, you know, as we, as we move out of, out of the 100s or out previous to that, into the 100s, through the 400s-ish, that, that time frame, the ritual begins to develop a little bit differently, okay, or it just begins to develop. Um, sometimes uh, water was poured over the person um, as opposed to them just being completely immersed as it was in the, in the early church. But it wasn't just merely a, uh, a profession of faith that, that was necessary, yes, I believe, baptized. Now there's a whole initiation process that kicks in, okay? And uh, it, could, it could take a couple of years, a couple of three years, until a person would be allowed to enter the community. And one of the things that had to happen first is they had to get a sponsor um, who would vouch for them to be able to enter into the community. Now this would be around the years, you know, 100-ish, to 300. So what was going on during that time? The Christians were being persecuted. Okay, so they're being rounded up and killed. So if you're going to become, if you want to become a part of this new religion, this new movement, they're not going to just be, you know, the Christians aren't on the outside, you know, on the roads, the Via Appia in Rome, you know, with signs, join our church, because <laughs> they're going to get killed. So the reason you, get, you would get a sponsor is the sponsor would vouch for you that, that this person who wanted to become a part of the community was not going to turn everybody over, you know, wasn't just engaging in espionage, you know, and then, then would fight, because obviously that's what would happen. So then, then you have this development of a sponsor. Well, the sponsor had to be somebody who was fully in the community, you know, morally upright, um, somebody who is trustworthy. And so if they said, 
you know, if I was a sponsor and I said, yeah, Rich is a good guy, they'd say, okay, well, let's start to examine Rich and see how that goes. And it would be this very slow process. And it was mostly focused on um, one's moral or ethical life. Okay, so the, the instruction wasn't so much about what does the church believe in all of its, because that wasn't even all worked out yet. Okay, so the, the focus was really about the person's life. There were certain jobs that Christians couldn't hold and if they were, to get, if they were going to become uh, Christian, etc. So, so it would take you know, a long period of time until the, the, until the person kind of cleared all of the suspicion and until they are, were deemed worthy and safe enough to enter into the community, just by necessity. Okay, so that's where we get sponsor slash godparent. That's where it starts. That's where the origin comes from. It's also the reason why the requirements on sponsors is greater than the requirements on even parents. So if you're going to be a godparent slash sponsor, you have to be in, in full communion with the church. You know, you have to be married in the church. You have to be confirmed. Um, all of that stuff, you have to be going to church. You know, you have to be a practicing member. It all comes from that place. And that's still, that's still supposed to be the way it is today. Now, a parent doesn't have to be, a parent who wants their child baptized, they could be a single parent. They could have been, you know, never been married. They could be married outside the church. They don't have to be confirmed. None of that, you know, I mean, they can even be kind of trying to go to church, but not necessarily you know, great about it, but at least they're kind of trying, you know, there's, there's again, a well-founded hope. But with a sponsor, it's, it's really, really strict, which is, which is kind of interesting because this is the thing that actually probably makes more people angry um, in my life that I'm aware of than anything else when they call and they, because you have to get a, you have to get the pastor, or the, the administrator's signature to be a, a sponsor. So if, you know, Dave, if after you're a Catholic, somebody asks you to be a godparent for a kid in Yuma, um, their church is going to say, okay, we'll get, get a letter from Dave's church and from his priest. And so then I'll, I'll, you know, I'll get this letter. Is he going to church? Is he in, you know, is he in full communion? And, da, 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 da. and then you'll need my signature. And then that'll have to be sent down to the church in Yuma for you to be able to be a godparent or sponsor. But if, not, if you're not going to church or if you're not confirmed, or well, then I'm going to say that. And then for a lot of people, that makes them really, really angry. Um, or it makes the parents really angry because they can't understand why, why would the godparent need to be, you know, practicing their faith. And which when you start to think it out, you start to say it. It sounds kind of silly that they would have a problem with it, but I'm telling you, it's like, and those of you who have been involved with this process, it's, it's uh, people get really, really irate about it. Um, I think because they feel like they're being judged, you know, whether they're worthy or not. And, um, you know, which in one sense is kind of true that, you know, we're trying to say, well, if you're not practicing your faith, or if the godparent or isn't practicing their faith, why would you want them to be a godparent? It has to do with how we understand godparent today. It's, it's changed from this, you know, this sponsor who's protecting the community, who is like, you know, the, the not an ideal, but, but somebody who is, is a really good Catholic 
who's going to vouch for this person before they can enter the community. It's gone from that to sort of a, an honorary title in people's lives. Um, and, and, and how that happens, it probably happens because the function of the sponsor or godparent doesn't persist. Godparents no longer have the role that they used to have. Not just in the early church, but you know, there was even a time where you would have, you know, when mortality rates were a lot higher, that you know, there was kind of an understanding that a godparent would be looking after the child, not just spiritually, which is what it's essentially supposed to be, but also you know, looking after the material needs if something happened to the parents and, and all of that stuff. But that doesn't really happen anymore. So really the godparent thing has turned into kind of an honorary, in practice, is sort of an honorary thing. This is one of the, this is just one of the tensions within the church that we'll discover, you know, through the course of looking at, at all of these sacraments, um, because, because the theology of the church is over here, but the practice of the church is over here. And you can say, well, they're supposed to be the epitome of a really good Catholic to be a, a godparent or sponsor, but in practice, nobody's using them for that. Well, I should say that not a lot of people are using them for that, or, and or, it's really hard for people to find somebody who fulfills that criteria. You know, try to find somebody who can, who can be godparents, and they're practicing their faith, and they're, you know, and, and they're, you're going to want them in their life, in, a, in your child's life, in a, in a spiritual way, which means they're going to be somewhat in frequent contact with them, etc. Okay. Um, so the, the catechetical instruction um, was called the catechumenate, which is what it's still called. Um, and catechumens are those who are not baptized, uh, who will be baptized. Okay, now it, it very quickly, uh, then baptism begins to happen on Sundays, um, as opposed to just sort of any time. And then it, it slowly moves toward uh, happening on the night, of, the night before Easter. There's this grand liturgy, okay? This is in the patristic times. We've restored this post-Vatican II, but what we did is we went back to what the early church was doing, okay? So there would be, um, this is in the early church, there would be a Paschal candle, the Easter candle, hymns, prayers, Old Testament scriptures. And then early in the morning, the candidates would line up to be baptized. Um, they'd make a renun final renunciation. Um, they would be stripped naked um, and baptized naked. Uh, the men assisted by deacons, women by deaconesses. And uh, they would stand in the water as the, the stand in water in the baptistry as the water was poured over their heads. After they left the pool, they would be immediately anointed with chrism and receive a white garment and presented to the bishop who, is lay, who would lay his hand on their head and anoint them with oil. So there's these two anointings, okay? Um, and the bishop would pray that they be filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember that in the early church, you just have bishops and deacons. There's no priests. Church isn't big enough. Not yet. Not until after the Edict of Milan, three 13. So it's small enough where there's only a few churches and a bishop is the head of the church, which is still true. The bishop is the head of the church. But 
what, what ends up happening is after the Edict of Milan, you have this huge growth spurt. Now you have all kinds of churches in individual towns. The deacons were never ordained to say mass or forgive sins. So then the bishops are like, well, we need help. And that's where you get priests from, okay? The, the presbyteral order, okay? Um, so after the, the Edict of Milan in 313, um, now, now the liturgy was opened up more to the catechumens. So they could actually sort of enter in a little bit more uh, to the liturgy and, and be more present because you could publicly celebrate the liturgy. So it wasn't like the catechumen would, would be outside of the community until a certain length of time and then they would be in. Now they would be able to participate in the mass up and through the homily. Um, but one of, the, one of the big questions that happened, um, uh, and I mentioned this before, was that since baptism still remained the normal, the, the normal way of having one's sins forgiven at this time, so we're in the 300s, you know, and we're talking about big sins, you know, the big sins. There, there was a concept then of, of, you know, kind of mortal sin and venial sin. So the big sins, for all of your sins to be forgiven, you're baptized. And the, um, the only way to receive forgiveness after baptism was what was called canonical penance. So the only form of penance that existed, I've mentioned this before, was really, really rigorous. So Bob commits adultery. He goes and confesses to the bishop. And the bishop says, okay, you know, you're forgiven. Your penance is to stand outside the church for 25 years, uh, sackcloth and ashes, and, and beg for forgiveness. So there weren't a lot of takers. <laughs> and if you were not baptized yet and you saw that that was the practice, what did they do? They said, yeah, I'll wait. So people were baptized on their deathbed because they didn't want to undergo the sacrament of penance as it was manifest at the time. Remember, you know, the, the oh, it's gone. So the, you know, the substance of the, is there, which is that the church, the bishops understand that they have the authority to forgive sins. The way that they are, you know, manifesting that form of forgiveness is pretty arduous. So no one's doing it. Um, so that, and when we get to that sacrament, we'll talk a little bit more about how that develops. But, it, but eventually the church understands that we need to change this practice because nobody's, you know, no, nobody's becoming Catholic. They're all just staying catechumens. However, at the same time, um, there was this desire to have uh, more and more children baptized. And that had a lot to do with an evolving understanding of what baptism did. So initially, baptism was, was kind of focused on, you know, changing one's life, right? Turning one's life around, leaving the old and entering into the new. And slowly but surely, the, the understanding of baptism forgiving sin kicked in, as well as the understanding of original sin, okay? And the scriptures are pretty clear that baptism is necessary for salvation. So if that's true, and if everybody has original sin then we better baptize as soon as possible. So now you see this movement toward baptizing children right away. Baptism used to be largely adults and families. There was adult bapti or ch child baptism, but it was largely adults. 
you know, again, you'd have whole households coming in, but it, but it was something that, you know, looked like this catechumenate where you have two and three years of formation. You know, you have a long period of formation, and then you're, you're able to come into the community, and then you're baptized. You're confirmed right there at the same ceremony, and then you're admitted to the Holy Eucharist. That was baptism. That whole thing was just sort of baptism. Um, what happens, though, is now that you have children being baptized, infants being baptized, and it's understood that it's the bishop who's the ordinary minister of confirmation, there's a problem. So the church grows, right? The church grows, and then now you have priests, because you can't have a bishop doing everything. So now you have priests. And the priests are baptizing the infants. But the church's understanding of confirmation is that it's the bishop who confirms. So what happens is this is where you get the split of these two sacraments. Before, you didn't have a split. You just had baptism, and it, at, when you got baptized, you got dunked, and then you got the oil. <laughs> you know, you got the chrism. You got water, and you got oil, and then you got Eucharist. So that was just, it was just kind of baptized. just It was one thing. There wasn't anything else. It's just what you did. That's how you became Catholic, which is why those three are called the sacraments of initiation. It's how you're initiated into the church, baptism, confirmation, Eucharist. And it was always in that order, baptism, confirmation, Eucharist. But, but at the earliest times, it was the bishop who confirmed, because in the West, not in the East, the Eastern Church, but in the West, um, that was reserved to the apostle and then the bishop to confer the Holy Spirit, okay? Although it could be delegated. But the, the bishop was understood to be the ordinary minister of confirmation. This is how we got that whole split with when do you get confirmed, right? And then some places it's at 16 years old, and, and then now we've moved it back earlier so that we've restored the original order of the sacraments of initiation. So now if children, if infants are baptized here in the Diocese of Phoenix, and most, well, a lot of the dioceses are moving to this because it, it makes, it's our history, you know, it's, our under, it's really a better understanding of, of what confirmation is all about. Confirmation is, is, a, is a part of initiation. It's a completion of baptism. And the further it gets detached from baptism, the more it loses its true understanding, its true theology. So now what happens in our diocese is you get, if you, know, if you have little ones, you have, you have the infant baptism. And then in second or third grade, at the same mass with the bishop or his delegate, they receive confirmation and first communion. So you have, you know, at least the, the original order is restored. But what happened was the, uh, the sacrament of confirmation sort of for hundreds of years was sort of left out in the cold. So you had all these people baptized and then they would receive reconciliation. I mean, this is how I did it. I don't know how you did it, but I was baptized, reconciliation in second grade and then I received Holy Communion, I think, in third grade. And then I didn't receive confirmation until my junior year of high school, um, which doesn't make any sense if you understand the history of the sacraments. Because confirmation now is like this Catholic bar mitzvah where I'm trying to say I'm like an adult as a Catholic now. It has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with that. 
but we put that meaning onto it because it needed a meaning. You know, because if we're going to be confirming at 16, well, what do we, what do we, well, now I'm going to be a soldier for Christ. Now I'm making my decision to be Catholic. But that's not what that sacrament's for. The sacrament of my decision to be Catholic happens every Sunday when we receive Holy Communion. And we say, I do. Body of Christ, I do. I am a Catholic. When we stand up and we, and we recite the creed, every single Sunday we make the commitment to be Catholic. That's, that's what Mass is. It's not what Confirmation is. Confirmation was always about, um, you know, confirming baptismal grace and receiving the fullness of the Holy Spirit, right? That's where the, the origins of confirmation come from is the descent of the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus, you know, breathing on the disciples and saying, receive the Holy Spirit. They've out, they, from the earliest times, the connection between receiving the Spirit and baptism was always completely integrated. Um, so that's why, you know, it's moved back. But the reason it got split was logistics, <laughs> basically. The bishop couldn't be everywhere. So you'd baptize all the kids, and then you'd wait for when the bishop could make it to the church, and then he would confirm everybody. And you know, as the churches grew and grew and grew, and you had more and more and more, you couldn't, uh, um, you, you know, you. You, you, there's just more and more time between when the bishop could get there. Okay, so as, as we move forward, you know, children are being baptized because this doctrine of original sin is, is developing more and more that they need to be forgiven of original sin or else they're going to be damned. But the understanding is their damnation would not be as bad as, you know, somebody else's damnation. Um, we had not yet developed, you know, kind of a fuller understanding of soteriology, salvation. Um, so there's, there's other ways of, of, in other words, we, it's the same thing with the sacrament of reconciliation. It's been revealed to us that for serious sins, for grave sins, it's the priest or bishop who is the ordinary minister of forgiving those sins. So it's been revealed to us that that's how our sins get forgiven just like it's been revealed to us that a person needs to be baptized to get to heaven. So we do what's been revealed to us. But God is not revealed by that, or God is not bound by that, that sort of, I mean, he doesn't have to bind himself to, to those rules. Well, I mean, why would God have to bind? I mean, he's telling us, look, this is what you need to do. Okay, well, what if, what if, uh, what if I'm driving to, you know how these, all these scenarios pop up? I'm driving to confession, and I have the intent of going to confession, and then I die. Am I going to hell? You know, and of course, all of this has been answered, which is to say no. You know, you have the intent of going to confession. The intent itself, as long as it's done for the love of God, uh, you're, you're actually forgiven before you even confess the sins. Um, so says the church. But because God is not bound by sacramental form, he gives us the sacraments to help us. But if all we do is focus on the, if I do it just this way, ex opere operato, we're not focused on kind of the fullness of the sacraments are supposed to be about changing our lives. You know, they're supposed to be about helping us through life. It's not, they're not sort of like uh, loopholes that we need to, or, or hoops that we need to jump through to be able to get into heaven. I got to jump through all my hoops and then I'm going to get into heaven. Good luck. I, there's probably a lot of people in, who are in hell who are fully initiated Catholics, or not. I don't know. Maybe none of them are. 
Maybe they all made it to heaven. I don't know. That's possible. It's theoretically, no one's in, it's theoretically possible there's no one in hell, except for the, you know, the devil and his angels. Um, um, okay, so, so what happens then is more and more through the 5th century, uh, infant baptism becomes universal, and now the practice of baptism becomes an infant pouring water over their head, as opposed to a pool of water, walking in naked, getting dunked, or getting stuff poured, you know, the water poured on you, which, you know, I mean, I suppose it, it doesn't really matter either way because it's still the same sacrament, but the practice is much different. You know, obviously you're not going to dunk children, although I, I remember I was a musician at this one church in Phoenix where they, they would do baptisms during mass, which I don't like that, and uh, you, you'll never see me do baptisms during mass but except for the Easter vigil but uh, they would have this big uh, font and during mass it about I think like once a month and like the priest would take the head and the, the feet and um, and the kid would be na- you know he'd be like I guess make him naked ka-chunk 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 three times Wow, that was a noisy time. Yeah, that's a traumatic experience. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that was, so that, that seemed a little odd to me. Um, but, uh, yeah. Okay, so, um, all right, let's see. Let's move forward here. Okay, so I explained how baptism gets separated from confirmation or vice versa. Um, and then what happened in the late 5th century, um, remember that in the low Middle Ages, so we're in the 5th century, low Middle Ages, high Middle Ages, 5th century low, 1500s, 1200s, 1500s, high Middle Ages, um, early and late. Um, the Rome falls to the, to the barbarians, which means most of Europe falls to the barbarians. So this is where, you know, Europe just, you know, really, this is where you get the Dark Ages moniker. I mean, because once you're overrun by the barbarians, so the, the Roman Empire falls, boom. Um, some people say, well, the Roman Empire really transferred to Constantinople and didn't fall for another 800, 700 years. But in the West, the Roman Empire falls. And so in the fifth century, the lights go out. And basically, uh, the only thing keeping society together in any kind of organized way are the monks, the monasteries throughout Europe that were established. So the monasteries, and, and there's, there's a zillion you know, movies that include monasteries from the Middle Ages and stuff. And it, yeah, it's mostly caricatures of it. But, you know, in essence, the whole thing is true, that, that, that if it wasn't for the monasteries, we would have lost so much learning, so many books, because all of the manuscripts were kept in the monasteries, and the monks would continue to copy them down and transfer them over centuries and centuries and centuries. It, w- it was the monks who, you know, uh, began to develop ideas like hospitals and universities and astrology and um, all kinds of stuff, you know, we owe, we owe to the monks. But um, 
basically at this time, you know, there, there, there was really no catechetical instruction regarding becoming Catholic. You know, you, because what happened is, okay, the, the German tribes come in, good old Germans, and uh, conquer what's left of the Roman Empire. And, uh, well, what do the monks want to do? Well, immediately they want to make them Catholic, good monks that they are. So uh, they basically just start baptizing the kids. And there's very, very little instruction, um, you know, along with that process. So you've got a lot of, and, and remember, too, that it's not like there's, you know, in the 5th in the century, it's not like people have high school diplomas. The literacy rate, you don't even have books yet, right? Not really. You have manuscripts, and they're held together. There's no printing press, right? Gutenberg was the 1500s, right? So, um, you know, people just, there's only so much you can know. I mean, the, the, you guys are coming to adult formation, and you're, you know, miles ahead of where people, you know, would have been back then, just because you have Google, you know, or you have Wikipedia, you know. <laughs> and one of the reasons why, you know, even, even the, all those old churches, you know, why do, we have all the, why do we have all the statues and the stained glass and everything else? Well, all of that was catechetical. You know, all of the art and everything was meant to, to teach. Yeah, it was meant to teach the faithful. I mean, now we look at it, and if we like it, it's somewhat edifying, and maybe we'll teach the kids. Um, but it, you know, it's kind of lost that it doesn't convey what it, what it used to convey because we don't need it to as much anymore. Um, so so the, the, uh, the focus, again, is baptize the infants so they don't go to hell. Don't really worry about catechetical instruction or moral formation. I mean, how much can you form a, an infant anyway? And even with the adults, just get them in. Just get them in. Make them Catholic. Make them Catholic. Well, obviously, this is going to have a deleterious effect on, on the church in other ways. Um, at the same time, what can be done with a bunch of unruly Germans, which is what I'm finding out up here. Uh, <laughs> it's a good thing I'm one of you. Um, <laughs> in the 8th century, uh, Charlemagne, uh, one of the bright spots somewhat in uh, the early Middle Ages, asked Rome for a copy of its sacramental books uh, because um, he wanted, in his kingdoms, he wanted uh, unity in, in the practice of the sacraments. And so the uh, Roman initiation rites were sent up there. And this is where we get the idea of, this is where we get, kind of start to get this idea of we get our books from Rome, you know, um, even though there was some resistance. But the point is that we have records of this stuff. Okay, so one of the things that happened in the, the turn of the 20th century um, um, and even a little bit before that, but what, what we began to do is we began to study things like sacraments and liturgy and theology from a historical perspective. We went back and started looking at all of the historical data. Up until that point, we just had the books that we had, and we just read the books that we had. All right? And so a lot of the books, even in the early 20th century, are not great books on theology because... They don't have any historical perspective. So a lot of the whole thing that happened with Vatican II is we had gone back and we had looked at the early practice of the sacraments. And then when you, when you look at how we practiced them early on, you know, with the sponsors and the catechumenate and all of this preparation, and then what it had become, 
you know, the, the bishops looked at this, the Holy Father looked at this and said, you know, we've really come a long ways away from sort of the purity of, of how we used to practice these sacraments. We need to take a fresh look at this and, and incorporate and, and kind of go back and, and, and kind of go back to our roots, as it were, okay? Um, so let's see. At this point, we basically, in the 8th century, um, there's a short ceremony Children received three exorcisms on the Sundays before Easter, then on Holy Saturday were dipped into the water three times, followed by a priest anointing their head with oil, and the bishop laying his hands on them and anointing them with oil. Um, in the rest of Europe, the imposition of the Roman custom resulted in a greater separation of baptism from confirmation. Um, because there was, and, and, and it became more, fewer and fewer people received confirmation because they were kind of like, well, why do I need it? Because the thing I need to not go to hell is baptism, and I, and I got it. So there's urgency about getting the baptism, but waiting for the bishop to show up so I get confirmation, eh, you know, I mean, that's kind of what happens. So it gets separated, and, and people are not confirmed, you know, nearly as much. Exorcism. Yeah. You don't know what an exorcism is? Yeah, we still have, we still have exorcisms uh, which are optional rites during Lent for the unbaptized. Um, they're called the scrutinies. And, uh, you know, they're just public exorcism. Priest lays his hands and asks uh, the devil to be driven out. Pretty standard exorcism stuff. That's what they're... Yeah, and adults who are not baptized. Well, I'm talking about the 8th century. I'm talking about the 8th century. So there still is an exorcism during the baptismal rite. Right at the beginning, boom, ask that Satan be driven out. Yeah. Yeah, there's still part of that in the ritual today. Yeah, we're kind of against Satan. So we try to drive him out as much as possible. And we do believe that he exists. Or as I like to say, we do believe that she exists. There's a really good chance that Satan is genderless. And that is not just a postmodern reality. It's because Satan is a fallen angel, and an angel does not have gender. Right? Pure intellect and will. Okay. Um, so in the 8th century, there was, there was still, I mean, the children were largely being baptized, but it was on Easter. The 11th century, then there became this turn toward don't wait till Easter, get them baptized as soon as possible. Well, why would that be? Infant mortality rates, right? So this is the 10 hundreds, and I don't know what they were, but it was probably like 40 to 50% mortality rate, if I remember my data right. So kids would die pretty, if they didn't buy, die right away, a lot of them died, and then just life itself, right? You have plagues and... Germanic tribes and vandals, and I mean, you have all kinds of stuff you can die from. So if, if baptism keeps you from going to hell, well, we don't wait till Easter. Get them baptized. Get them, you know, I mean, you can, the poor little kids, they can feel the flames tickling their feet. Get them baptized. In the 13th century, 
Well, it sounds ridiculous because it kind of is. But, you know, I mean, all they had was the theology they had, you know. And, and now when we've got when we've been able to look at things historically, it's not that, you know, I mean, we, we understand that that I mean, our, it's just it's just, just a different world. You know, death is not right in front of our face like it used to be. So if, if you didn't think, if you were only going to live to be 20-something or 30, and maybe half your kids would survive past five, well, you want them to go to heaven, you know? And, and it's not like you have a whole lot of time to practice the sacraments. So get them baptized, you know? Get them, get them what you can get them while you have them, right? Because you got it. there's an urgency, right? So I ridicule it a little bit, but if you understand maybe a little bit more, which I don't completely, but I think I'm on track here, that, you know, it's a different experience of life. So you want to give them, parents want to give their kids good things, you know, so you give them what you can give them. You give them, you give them baptism. It's what you can give them right away, and it's going to help them. And, you know, gosh, I don't want them to go to hell, and that was the understanding. Um, so, so it happens. It's also, you know, it's... <laughs> Just be honest. I mean, there, there's all kinds of studies of how the church throughout the ages has used fear um, and guilt to coerce people into practicing their faith. And if you have a largely uneducated uh, society, and everybody's Catholic anyway, I mean, they're all Catholic because you are the faith that your ruler is, and the rulers were all Catholic at that time. So everybody's Catholic doesn't mean they're practicing Catholics or they're good Catholics, but yeah, of course you're Catholic. There's just one thing. There's nothing else. There's no other religion. They're just Catholic. So if you're all Catholic anyway, you know, and then, and then the, the priests or the bishop are like, well, we got to get these kids baptized and, you know, but we can't really, you can't really reason with people who don't really have, they can't, how, what do you communicate about what you're trying to do with a largely uneducated population. They can't read. They can't, you know, people are just farmers. They're just simple people. And I mean, that sounds pejorative about farmers. I mean, my whole family was farmers, but the farmers today are so much well more educated than the, right? I mean, you get what I'm trying to say. So the church uses, you know, guilt or fear, you better get them baptized. And then everybody gets baptized. And that's great for the church because we want to make sure everybody gets baptized. You know, we don't necessarily think about why you know, some of those effects, though. And this is, this is actually, it's a fascinating thing because you have, you have uh, how many people remember pre-Vatican II days? I don't want to look at you particularly. Um, so, so my experience of post-Vatican II growing up in the church, but then studying all this stuff and studying that time, you know, the, the early 60s to the late 60s when all these changes were happening, you know, it was a time of tension. It was like a clash of, of ideas and um, because we're, we're, changing, we're changing the mass, we're going away from Latin, and now Father's doing a puppet show during his homily, which happened, um, which is ridiculous, but it happened. So you have this, this all of this tension and, and all the rest. Well, all of that comes from you know, the, the 20th century study of sacraments and theology from a more historical perspective. It's a whole movement um, within theology and liturgy, like my discipline, moral theology. Everything was undergoing change because we, dis we, we began to take a historical look at things. 
We began to uncover things. We went right to sources, as opposed to just taking the books, the manuals. Like in moral theology, they just had manuals. You know, you just had the manuals, and they told you what to do. So you read the manual, and this is what it says. But there was no, like, historical study of things or a fuller biblical understanding, biblical criticism, etc. So it, the, the 20th century has just been a, 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 just a torrent of um, ideas and, and changes, which I think are, I would never want to do it the other way. I would never want to not have an understanding of the history of the sacraments or why the church did what she did, even though it uncovers some odd practices and some some not so great practices and some actually some pretty bad stuff so what it's life you know life is what life is and i think you know it it takes the window dressing off what the church has always been i guess but at the same time the church looks more real and more human which i think is good actually this is my this by the way this has all been my opinion all right When did I start? I can never do it in one hour. See? I can never do it in one hour. Okay. So, well, we're not that far off because I've largely done confirmation along with it. Um, okay. So, um, so, you know, as we've progressed, you know, throughout history and, uh, you know, a lot of these ideas get solidified in the Council of Trent in the 1500s. Um, but then again, in the 20th century, um, through historical study, we discovered how the sacraments were celebrated in the early church and that what they had come to through the, the practice all the way up and sort of solidified in the Council of Trent was sort of a, a reductive, right, sort of a lessened practice of, of what the sacrament was really supposed to be about, that it really wasn't, the practice of baptism wasn't just about Get them, get them baptized so they don't go to hell. That's what it ended up being. Get them baptized so they don't go to hell. Great. Well, no wonder there's no ex, operante, ex, opera, ex operato operantis, ex opere operantis. You know, there's no focus on fruitfulness because there's just a focus on doing the thing and going to Mass on Sunday because if I don't go to Mass on Sunday, it's a mortal sin, so I better go to Mass. Well, how much of Mass do I have to go to? Well, you have to at least hear the gospel and receive communion. Okay, so I can show up about 10 minutes late, and I can leave right after <laughs> communion, right? Yes, that will fulfill your obligation. So everything become, becomes reductive. It becomes reduced to the bare minimum, right? So we, we look at the history of it all, and we say, wait a second, baptism is supposed to be about conversion. It's really about, you know, changing one's way of life. So the adult baptism, it's called the RCIA now, which unfortunately we're not able to do in its fullness because we just don't, we don't have the, the full staff to do it. It's just me. Um, but the RCIA process becomes the normative form of baptism. The adult baptism process is the normative form of baptism, not infant baptism, which creates another tension because we're still doing infant baptism. But we don't necessarily believe that, we really don't believe that children are, are going to hell, although the church will never say unbaptized children who die before they're, you know, who die are, are not going to hell because the church would never say that about anybody because we would never say we know where somebody's going because if we say, well, they're not going to hell, that means they're going to heaven, but we would never say, yeah, we know they're going to heaven because we never say that about anybody. <clears throat> but we presume it. Okay. 
All right, so then uh, we still have, um, so the normative form of baptism then in the church is what Dave is doing. All right, Dave is not baptized, but we like him. We love him. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. You know, and Dave is going to, um, he'll be baptized at the vigil if you, if you still choose to do it, right? I mean, I don't want to make it, um, you always, you know, you're in this process, right? Right? The presumption is you're going to want to do it. But so you would get baptized. And then as an adult, if an adult is baptized, this is what's really interesting about the confirmation and baptism thing. Dave is going to be baptized. Then I'm going to confirm him. And then he's going to receive Holy Communion. Why isn't the bishop going to confirm him? Because we don't do that with adults. We only do it with kids. So if, if a child is baptized, uh, Catholic, the priest baptizes them. And then the child has to wait to be confirmed when they receive their first Holy Communion somewhere in third grade. And they'll receive that by either the bishop or somebody who the bishop appoints, which could be a priest, another bishop, that kind of thing. Um, the reason why he will still send another priest, even though that's no different than why doesn't he just, you know, name me to do it, right? It, this, this argument has been put forth uh, to the bishop. But the... <laughs> The reason why is to preserve that connection between confirmation and the bishop. So even if he sends a vicar in or the dean to do it, um, it's still symbolic that it's his authority sending somebody else in to do it. That's why, is to preserve that. Um, But again, attention, right? Because why can I confirm Dave and I, I ordinarily have... I'm not the ordinary minister of of that sacrament of confirmation, but I'm given the faculty to do it normatively because of my office. But I can't do it if if you have a kid, and I can't do it if you have an infant. And I baptize, or you know, one of the one of the kids you might be be preparing down in Ashford. I can't if I baptize them. I can't confirm them. Although I do give them an anointing after baptism, which is chrism. Again, it doesn't completely make sense, but it's just one of those things in the church that it all goes back to our understanding and the early, early times. And this was the, this, the understanding that the church came to in the early church in the patristic period, that it was through the bishop that the Holy Spirit was confirmed. Okay, the Holy Spirit came through. That was particular to his office as bishop, as an apostle. And so because of that understanding, we still want to preserve that. But it's a strange preservation because for adults, we don't and we never expect to. Um, and uh, for instance, we can, I can also ask for Now, I have to be delegated to do this. But if I have a bunch of adults in a parish who need to be confirmed, um, adult Catholics who need to be confirmed, um, I can prepare them. So let's say I got 10, I got a group of 10. They need, they've got all the other sacraments. I need to con- get them confirmed. I can actually appeal to the bishop and say, hey, I want to do an adult confirmation. Can I do it? He'll say yes, and then I can confirm them. But with the kids, no. So again, there's just, it's just an interesting reality. Um, to me, you know, it seems, it seems odd, but, but one of the things it also does is it allows for the bishop to get around to his his parishes. So even though even though Bishop Olmstead doesn't get to every parish every in the east because they do this in the in the Easter season, 
It does allow the bishop, or in our case, the bishops, because we're going to have Bishop Navarro's this year. It allows the bishops to get out to the parishes, and that's a good thing. So that's a good thing that's preserved, is um, especially up here, you know, because it's, I don't know how, I don't know when the last time you all saw Bishop Olmstead was, but, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you don't necessarily see him all that much, but, but you want to try to maintain a connection, um, you know, to the bishop whenever possible. Okay, so confirmation currently then, when, when does somebody get confirmed? It just depends. If they're not Catholic and they get baptized at the Easter Vigil, they get confirmed right away, and then they get communion, just like the early church. That's the normative process. If, if they receive infant baptism, all they receive is baptism, and then they will receive confirmation along with, with the Holy Eucharist somewhere around third grade-ish time. If they're an adult who is baptized as an infant, received reconciliation, received Holy Communion, um, they, they can receive confirmation at the Easter Vigil, or you can also ap apply for another dispensation to do it at another time. Got it? So I didn't really get into the theology. Oh, I have, set, I have six minutes to get into the theology of what baptism actually does. That's fantastic. So baptism is, in one sense, the most important sacrament. Because without baptism, you cannot receive any other sacrament. It's the doorway to all of the other sacraments. You can't receive any other sacrament before you're baptized. So because what baptism does is it, is it actually affects a change um, at the level of the person's soul. It configures the soul such that the soul can now receive grace. Okay, so now the soul, it's like, okay, now it's configured through baptism. Now it can receive all subsequent grace in the soul, sacramental grace, the, gra the, the grace of any other sacrament that the person receives, okay? Because what happens in baptism, the most essential thing is, they is a person receives divine life. They receive sacramental grace so that now grace can become what's called habitual, it, become, it becomes a habitus in the soul. Grace can stay in the soul. You can always receive what's called actual grace. That's just God zapping you with grace, like the emperor from Star Wars. Bzz. We have two Star Wars fans. Um, so, you know, God can zap you with grace anytime he wants, actual grace. But to receive sacramental habitual grace, it requires a sacrament, the first one being baptism. And then all of the other sacraments... And if you're in the, that's what it means to be in the state of grace, right? You remember the term, state of grace. It means I'm in grace, which means God is in my soul. When we commit a mortal sin, God is no longer in my soul. God is no longer living in my soul. His grace is not in my soul. That unity between ourselves and God is broken, which necessitates a, um, a, a, an act to get that grace back. What is that act called? The sacrament of reconciliation. So the grace comes back in. Which is why you don't have to go to the sacrament of reconciliation if all you have is venial sins, because you still got the grace. You still have the sacramental grace as a, as a habitus in the soul. But if you lose that, you definitely need to go to, presumably, because that's what's been revealed to us. That's what you need to do. You need to go to confession to be reconciled with God and the community so that now his grace is back, is restored to the soul. That's what reconciliation means. All right, now it's back. And so the whole goal 
for the Catholic is living in the state of grace. And that's why the focus needs to also be on not just ex opere operato, doing the stuff, but operantes, right? Opening up, what is this gift I've received? I have Jesus living, you know, his grace is in my soul. The Holy Spirit is so, it's intimately connected with me. It's in me. Well, that's pretty amazing. It's that, that's not just going and doing the stuff on Sunday. That's something that is ongoing. Christ is actually in me, continuing to reform me and remake me and rebuild me and, right, restore me. So the whole goal then is staying in that state of grace. So baptism creates that first reality and gives us the ability to be called, what, be called a child of God, a son or daughter of Christ. Confirmation, which again is connected to baptism, it seals, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Amen. That's, that's the essential, right? What you have in uh, form and matter in, in confirmation is you have the sacred chrism, which is oil blessed by the bishop. It's consecrated by the bishop, not just blessed. It's a special consecration, and uh, perfume is put into that oil. So it's chrism on the forehead, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay? Um, form and matter. Words and stuff. So what that does, what the oil does, is it seals the baptism. Okay? So it's always... The right understanding of confirmation is always connected to baptism. And what one receives through that is a greater share, a greater outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Right? Just like the Holy Spirit that descended upon the apostles at Pentecost, this is the connection, again, to the, to the apostles. It's the Holy Spirit descended on the apostles. Right? They were given the, the Holy Spirit by Jesus. I mean, you have a couple of different narratives of this. In the upper room, breathes on them, receive the Holy Spirit, just the apostles. Then you have, then you have that experience of Pentecost. You have the, the, the apostles there. Now, there are more people there, too. But there's a particularity to the apostles receiving the Holy Spirit. Because of that being conveyed to them, you get that connection between the bishop, who is a modern apostle, and, you know, the giving of the Holy Spirit then. Um, You know, there's more, but there's always more. We'll get to, there's always more. We don't have to understand everything right away, as if we understand everything any way. Um, okay, so that's, that's, uh, that's good enough to stop.